Hello and welcome to the Motor Racing Passion Podcast, brought to you by Breakthrough Health and Wellness. I'm Luke Blattman, joined as usual by Daniel Blattman, Adam Blattman and Brock Schaefer, and today we're looking back on the 2005 Formula One season. It was an interesting season's racing, with the first non-Michael Schumacher world champion of the 21st century, Fernando Alonso. We'll start, though, with my biggest question from 2005. Daniel, would you have pitted Kimi Raikkonen to replace his front tyre before the final lap of the European Grand Prix at the Nürburgring? It's a tough one. Hindsight is obviously yes. But who pits someone from the lead when you're behind and chasing the world championship? So, yeah, I think I would have erred on the side of risk and kept him out. Brock? Well, it's 2005 and a McLaren. So I think the main point is it doesn't matter because the car would have broken down before the finish line anyway. It was the last lap. But it would have broken down anyway. Well, I think it isn't something like that was his fifth consecutive year that he failed to finish at um, Nürburgring, I think, something like that for old Kimi. Jeez, that's a stat. We'll have to fact check that one. I am now. Yeah, so that's, that was his fifth year in a row that he um, failed to finish. Yeah, no, I think if you're in the lead, he, you chance your arm, especially when you're behind in the F1 championship, world championship. So, um, yeah, no, like I think if he pitted, he would have come out, what, third, fourth, I think? Third. Yeah. Yeah, he, yeah, he needed to win, though. Yeah. That's where, like, I think that's where the pressure came from. If he was leading the world championship, where he had a buffer, yeah, hundred percent they would have pitted. But he was, uh, yeah, chasing the chasing the season by that point. Ron Dennis was pretty unapologetic for not pitting. He was just saying we needed the win. Second place was no good. Hard to argue with the big man. Do you remember um, the commentary at the time? How leading up to that, James Allen, well, the the ITV commentary that we got here in Australia, James Allen kept on saying that oh they should pit, they should pit. And Martin Brundle was saying, "No, nah, if, if if you're leading the Grand Prix, you got you, you got to try and win it." And then when the um, when the tire blew, and as Raikkonen sliding into the gravel trap, I'm pretty sure I remember um, James Allen sort of going, "I told you so, I told you so." <laughs> yeah, hindsight's always 2020, isn't it? But that sort of summed up Raikkonen's year, really. He was always he was giving chase, but the McLaren were behind right from the start of the year. In a big way, too. Um, Renault won the first four races. Fernando won three of the four. So, yeah, regardless of what McLaren were doing, yeah, they were they were a long way behind. Because they had the best car and everything as well. They seemed to, in terms of the fastest car. They seemed to have the fastest car, but obviously not the most reliable, as Brock alluded to. But looking at, looking at that start of the season, too, they definitely didn't have the fastest car in that first quarter of the season. Or I'd say actually up to Spain, so Australia, Malaysia, Bahrain, and Imola, uh, their best result was a third. And yeah. in Australia, they finished eighth and sixth. So I think they did have poor, the potential. Poor qualifying hurt them too a bit, yeah. didn't they? Yeah, but it, like just looking at the speed of that, yeah, for Raikkonen to go um, eighth, ninth for the first two races, um, they hadn't really unlocked the potential of the car by that stage. I think Australia, Raikkonen had a, a like the car stalled or something on the start, so I had to go for an abort start, and he started from the yeah. pit lane. 
And then Malaysia, I'm pretty sure he had a tyre failure and still got back up into the points. So I think the car was there. It just wasn't reliable, whereas later in the year, they seemed to get it a bit more reliable to a point where it could actually show its pace. But McLaren always seemed to run heavy on fuel. So if they'd qualify second, they'd have 10 more laps fuel than whoever was on pole. So I think if it wasn't for that sort of odd fueling qualifying rule in 2005, I think the McLaren would have seemed a lot quicker. Yeah, and, and that's a fair point. So with the amount of engine penalties that, um, you know, even regardless of where they qualified, they were starting, uh, you know, 10 positions back in the races. They were always charging through. So, yeah, not a bad not a bad shout there, Brock. Yeah, he got um, particularly Monza, I think, was critical in the championship when he had when he got the penalty and had to start back in the field for that one. And he had a pretty messy race as well, spinning at one of the chicanes and... Because when you look at it, he only retired from two races, and obviously one of them being um, uh, Germany that you mentioned before. So most of the unreliability came from practice and qualifying, like the Mercedes engine blow-ups. And they had lots of drive shaft failures. I remember that. It was Montoya or Eichen, and one of them would constantly have drive shaft failures in practice and in the races. Maybe the majority of them were Matoya, if Raikkonen only got two DNFs. I think Raikkonen won, he was leading Sam Marino, and um, he had a drive shaft failure. Yes, he was leading. But what a race that turned into. Well, yeah, that was, um, if you weren't impressed enough by Alonso's start to the year before then, I mean, that that really set the tone for the year. And a nice duel that was uh, followed up 12 months later, so... um, yeah, Schumacher and Alonso definitely had the uh, wood on everyone on those two tracks. Uh, at Imola, two years in a row. But how how good was it to see the um, Imola with the, the chicane in the final part? Like the new revamp one that we've got now is um, the long front straights, different, but how good was it seeing going back into that final little chicane before the run down to the first chicane there? Do you reckon that offers anything though? Like it wasn't really a passing passing opportunity like at least i feel now with the um revamped part at least you can get a run on someone into tamborello chicane oh i guess only with a drs yeah but now but yeah but but that's like that chicane wasn't like didn't really offer much racing wise did it maybe not for f1 but for other international series that race there i think it added a little bit there especially for the bikes but they still use the chicane for the bikes but I think that last chicane, probably all it ever offered was um, Damon Hill running into Shinji Nakano in 1997. That's the biggest memory I have of that chicane. I think Alan Prost spun there in 89. But no, I don't, I don't, I don't mind that. I don't mind that long run down to the first corner. But no, Alonso's championship run, I mean, even if the McLarens were reliable, I th- I th- he'd have still been hard to beat, I think, just because he, he just put together such a strong season. Yeah, and only... Only one error, really, for the whole season, one driving error from Alonso. So he was sublime, and it was a real sort of um, like that generational change that you get every, you know, what, five, ten years, where the changing of the guard, and uh, Schumacher just couldn't do anything about it, which was interesting. It really just came down to Raikkonen and Alonso, the new kids on the block, who's going to uh, who's going to be the next force to reckon with. But... um. Yeah, I thought Alonso was mega that season. And that whole team as well was so polished. Like, 
if you think of French teams in Formula One, um, you probably don't think of teams as successful and as polished as Renault were in that era. They've been building back up over the previous few years as well. Like the, they were building to that year, 2005. Yeah. We'd just say it was the British foundations of the team, more so than a French team, that uh, may have given it that stability. Well, yeah, it was Benetton. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's all right, yeah. With, right. With, with some French funding. Yeah, and some engine building, yeah. Well, te- technically, Tolman. Yeah, that's... It's 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 funny on a side note. There's a there's a um, interesting um, YouTube uh, doco that looks at the origins of all the current Formula One teams. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's even funny. Like you just look at Mercedes, and technically you look at Honda racing against themselves yeah. um, in yeah. one in one iteration too, which is quite funny. Yeah, Honda spent all that money buying that team <laughs> and then sold it. Yeah, and now it's Mercedes. Yeah, uh, it's so good. And actually, BAR spent all that money. <laughs> now it's Mercedes. But that uh, that that Renault is uh, your favourite car, Brock. Yeah, I mean, all, I like a lot of the cars from that era. Are, um, Mega, uh, two thousand five in particular. I think the cars look beautiful because they trimmed down a bit of the um the aero rules for that year. Off of two thousand and four, they made the front wings a little bit higher and the rear wings were. The front wings a bit higher, the rear wings were brought forward a bit. And uh, I don't know, I just love the way they look. I think that livery on that Renault is epic. Obviously, the last V10s. And um, there's just so many good liveries, like the Minardi. You know, everyone recognises the Minardis and the Jordan from then. Um, they were just good-looking cars. It was before the, the matte paint trend that's come in because it's, you know, slightly more beneficial for aero. So all the cars were painted and glossy and shiny and... Yeah, it was just it was just an awesome era. It was uh really cool, and that Renault, um, yeah, sticks in my mind. It's a super cool car, and uh, I liked it. Yeah, Re- Renault pulled off a pulled off a rare trick by um getting bright blue and bright yellow to work together on the car because they're two colours that don't usually go together. But the mild seven blue and the Renault yellow just seemed to really it was a quite a nice livery. And the Telefonica on the rear wing. I don't know. It was just a good-looking car. Um, but it's so many of those cars were. I don't know what it was about the regulations that year. It's hard to think of an ugly car. Um, the whole field, I thought, looked really good um, in that era. Those cars were beautiful. It's probably, you know, the groove tyres were probably a bit lame. But um, past I think it's an understatement. The yeah, Jordan um, and the Midland, that might be the one that looked a bit dodged. But that might have just been because... I was used to the Benson and Hedges um, livery on the Jordans. Having said all that, though, about the groove tyres, I, I, I struggle to imagine the cars in that era without the groove tyres. Yeah, and, and you know what is interesting? You can see, like, if you watch an onboard, especially from 2003, 4 and 5, um, and and six to a to a degree is the driving style, especially in the low speed stuff, is so different to what you see today. Like today, it's all about precision and not like overslipping the tires. And back then, like Alonso and Raikkonen obviously picked up the technique super fast for it, um, and the way they sort of balance the car. But they just reef on as much lock as quick as possible. And when the tire starts going through that graining phase, it's basically they just induce 
crazy amounts of understeer and just push through the grading phase as quick as possible. But watching the onboards from that that year is so, so different to any other era of Formula One that you watch because, yeah, they just had no, no uh, front-end group at low speed. But from the outside shop, they looked super light and super nimble because they were light and small cars. But just... Just a strange era, and the onboards definitely have a different rhythm to them to um to a lot of other years. I remember, um, yeah, Alonso's onboards with that really over-exaggerated understeer. Like, you just see him reef the wheel, and the car would just push on <laughs> and then eventually grip halfway through the corner, but obviously seemed to suit him down to the ground, whereas not as much as Fizzy. Well, Fizzy is, is Fizzy. The uh, olden, or sorry, I'll reword that, is Bottas, the modern-day Fisichella. That's, I think that's a slice on Bottas. Oh, really? Yeah, well, Bottas is one, like... I think that's a slice on Fisichella. No, Bottas's record is superior to Fisichella's. Bottas, Bottas has had better cars, though. Yeah, like, you well, look hang at the time back on. then. Hang on, hang on. Fizzy has been in... The Renault, what, 2005 World Championship car? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so he had a Renault. 2006. Yeah. Jordan? Jordan oh, but, but 97 had, was okay. He had a Minardi. I'll take out 96. No, 96 is gone. 97 Jordan, 98 Benetton. So solid yeah. car, but not not, not the outright best. Uh, he was with, in a Force India for a bit there, wasn't he? 2008. Yeah, that was rubbish. Yeah, and he finished when he 2009 Ferrari. Ferrari it did did the last quarter of the season, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. All I would say is, if um, yeah, Bottas has had a Mercedes for what four or five years, uh, whereas Fizzy had the Renault for two. But you look at the amount of podiums. So Bottas has more wins. But I think overall podiums within those two seasons, Bottas outstrips Fisichella nine day. Maybe statistically, but sitting on the couch with my expert opinion, I'll disagree strongly. Yeah, I'm just, just going to bring up and have a look at Fizzy. So Fizzy finished fifth in the 2005 World Championship. 58 versus 133, so less than 50% of what Fernando Alonso scored in the same car, which is not great for one Zichella. 2006. Especially after he won the first race. Well, yeah, he won the first race and then just hit an absolute roadblock. I don't think he finished the next. Well, he crashed the next three races straight. Yeah. And he had that big crash at Eau Rouge. Yes, yep. And then we'll get that to was, that, later, was, that was a really big crash. And then and then when it gets to Japan, he doesn't cover himself in glory. No. Yeah. So Fizzy in 2006, ironically, does better. Oh, see. He fourth with see, the he comes the back pedal. No, 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 no. Comparative to 2005, he did better. But he still only just scored 50% of Fernando Alonso's total for the year. And what about Bottas versus Lewis? Okay, do you want me to do each of these years or um, which? Um... I'll just just do uh just do last year then, out of curiosity, because obviously it's uh our the listeners are just dying to know. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, I was going to say, because I think 2017, he was particularly good in his first year. Valtteri Bottas. Yeah, so he scored 223 to 347, which doing some quick maths is, uh, it's about a third. Sorry, so 66%. So his 2020 year is better than both of Fizzy's years relative to his teammate. What do you reckon, Daniel? I mean, oh, what, do you, what do you reckon, oh, Luke? Because stats are just numbers, you know. They don't mean anything. <laughs> oh, I, 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 I actually think that that was a good, um, a good comparison, Bottas and Fisky Keller. I, I, overall, they they're both pretty good and can win races, but they just overshadowed by a more dominant teammate. In, in fairness to both of them, they have come up uh, come up against a two the probably v2 best drivers probably being harsh and battle throw battle in there so two of the three best drivers of the last 20 years yeah sorry that's not being fair to schumacher take schumacher out you think vettel alonso and hamilton so they're up against two of the two of the grades i think what hurt fissy keller was that alonso had basically been groomed for that world championship since 2002 or even 2001 in the Minardi, but when he joined Renault in 2002, I mean, they were building him for a championship run. Definitely. I think ever since Schumacher left Benetton, Flavio was trying to um, work on the next prodigy, and, um, yeah, Fernando was that in uh, in a lot of ways. Well, in 98, Fissi Keller was probably the Alonso in terms of what Flavio was looking for in looking 98 for, yeah. when he yeah. joined, well, it was Benetton at that point. That was going to be his um, his third season in F1. They ended up letting him go a couple of years later and then got him back for 05. Was it right that at that point Flavio had something to do with Weber at that point and was trying to get him to go to Renault at that point or was that when he was going from Williams to Red Bull? No, um, Briatore was Weber, became Weber's manager from 2001, I think. Yeah. Yeah. When he signed that testing deal with Benetton. Yeah. And he he stayed his manager all the way through, I think, at an arm's distance after um, Flav got thrown out in 2008. But um, so your your point, Adam, um, if he took that seat at Renault, who who would have missed out? Fisi Keller or Alonso? Fisi Keller. Fisi Keller. Fisi Keller would have just gone to Williams. Because yeah. Fizzy was brought in from um, Sauer in 2004 into mm. the open seat um, for 2005. But, um, yeah, and it was actually what Flavio who said he should go to Renault. And um, uh, Weber said, no, I want to go to Williams. And I think yeah. Flavio reminds him of that every single day. What, what do you think was Alonso's best drive in 05? For me, Imola. Because... That was like big pressure in front of an Italian crowd with Michael Schumacher, the guy, you know, you're trying to knock off the perch all over you. And uh, and that was for, I think it was that, that was their second race with the new car, with the new spec Ferrari. Yep. And, uh, and uh, yeah, you know, mm. everyone knows what Schumacher's like. And uh, he had nothing to lose because he had such a bad system bad start to the season and he was he was sticking it in there like there were a few times he actually got an overlap on Alonso and uh yeah Alonso was just just totally calm and then in his interview afterwards he just 
they asked him, oh, you know, you know, what did you think when Schumacher was catching you? Were you prepared to give up the win? And he just said, no, nope. the only thing I imagined was winning. And I think that'd be really hard to do with the four-time world champion or of the last four years all over you. And uh, I thought that was his best drive of the season. And in a way, I reckon mentally, he probably half won the championship there. Yeah, hard, hard to argue with Brock's assessment there, but just picking out some other key races... I think where he snuck the championship in uh, uh, Brazil um, was was pretty impressive too, under all that pressure. And obviously that's when Raikkonen was going on his kind of back end of the season spree. Under all that pressure, he just relentlessly was ticking second places, third places, just accumulating points. And even though Raikkonen was winning, putting the pressure right back on him, uh, which, is, uh, which is impressive. And honourable mention to the Japanese Grand Prix, um passing like he not obviously not as good as uh Kimi but he he came back through the field uh to ultimately finish third but and he did that pass on uh Schumacher around the outside of 130R which is a uh, pretty That's pretty a strong feat result. in itself to, mm. to to commit to do that at 130R and then he lost the position in the pits not long after and then he had to pass Schumacher again and he, even that even that pass he pulled on Weber that he basically went on yeah. the dirt. That's um, that was pretty uh, yeah. Yeah, that impressive. that put him on the podium. What do you reckon his best drive was, Adam? Oh, he can't can't go past um, as Brock said with uh, Imola race there. Um, me being a massive uh, Michael Schumacher fan for many 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 years. Um, even in the like he said with the brand brand new car, the second race on it, Ferrari Ferrari were trying to find their feet to bounce back and he just held his nerve and um came came out and you know a, a, a race winning drive worthy of a champion um to hold that off so uh, uh, that early in the season as well I guess it kind of just stamped his own um mark on it so yeah i'll have to go with Imola. he didn't seem to let any pressure get to him all year he, he drove like he'd won plenty of championships whether it was Imola or whether it was Brazil at the end of the year or just throughout the year, he he drove like he'd he'd done it all before. Yeah, and like even how he handled himself in like the press conferences and everything else like that, it was just calm, nothing, not letting anything slip or anything like that. It was just pretty calculated from him. I reckon one of his best drives was the Australian Grand Prix. He qualif- he got caught out in the wet qualifying, which put him down the back of the grid, and he drove through and he, he finishes third on the podium. Him, him and Barrichello actually sort of came through the field and they sort of came from nowhere to sort of jump Coulthard and Weber and those guys. And then you wonder if that gave him a bit of a psychological um, lift as well because, I mean, Fisichella won the race, but he just he just mowed it around in front, did it easy. But then Alonso sort of fought his way through the whole field and got up to third. And I, I think that was one of his one of his good drives as well. If you win a championship, can you really have you know one one outstanding race that puts it over the other? Because you got to build it up over the the span of the season. There's a couple of pivotal moments, but yeah, if you started off well, good front foot and keep going like that. So it was impressive they won the last race as well at China. So isn't that a bit odd finishing finishing oh. it that year at China? Taking the words out of my mouth, Adam. <laughs> what, a, what a weird track to finish the year at. They should have stuck with Brazil. I agree. 
that was its um that was China's second year, and I guess they paid for it. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, when you think of and and fittingly it wasn't, but when you think of final race championship decider, you don't think of the China Autodrome. Mm. Um, I per I personally don't think of Abu Dhabi either, but that's what we've mm. got at the moment. We look at you got Harath, which was ninety seven when um Villeneuve and Schumacher had their one. Um, that wasn't the most of inspiring circuits to close the season either. Well, it was supposed to be Estoril, but it got um it got replaced during the year by by Harath. Well, then then prior to that you had Adelaide until they moved it to Melbourne, which was you know street track in Australia, so you can't go wrong with finishing a season there. There's a, uh, a couple of things I wanted to ask you guys about the 2005 season. So Go for it. The first is, uh, like, this is just your opinion, because I, I thought this was quite interesting, and I remember watching it as a kid thinking, that's interesting, was they brought in the Rule 1 engine for two race week weekends, which back then was, you know, a complete disaster and ridiculous. So BAR in Australia were running outside of the points. Of course, the points didn't run the full top 10 back then. And on the last lap, both BARs come in and retire to get fresh engines for Malaysia, which then blow up on the second lap of the Malaysian Grand Prix. (laughs) So I'd like your opinion on BAR's start to the season after a pretty strong 2004 season. Well, it ain't got worse from there for him. Well, well, yeah. Well, let's remember even before then, but Button tried to leave the team mm. yes. to join Weber at Williams. I mean, I go, I don't blame him. I mean, one engine, one engine per two races rule. I mean, that just at the end of the day, that that that's almost begging teams to do that that are out of out yeah, of points. Contention. Yeah, you know, if if it's it just encourages people to to do those sort of things. Bit like nowadays when people take engine penalties when they get a because they, when they get a grid penalty and th- things like that it's just mm. like it's people are going to take advantage of those sort of rules. But yeah, and it didn't get any better because they got disqualified from um, from Imola for running an underweight car and then they got kicked out of um, Barcelona and Monaco. But yeah, they had, to, the, they had the, to hold on to those engines that they ran. In Imola, didn't they? So they missed the car sat idle for since Imola, and they'd run those engines untouched when they returned. They did, and the uh, the whole underweight thing is quite interesting. We should probably talk about that because that hasn't happened since. No, but, but basically, is uh, after the race they drained the fuel out of the car and uh, weighed it, and and everything was all good, um, and then. The FIA had a further look at it and discovered an additional sort of hidden fuel tank in a in in a different part of the car and drained that, and the car came in about five or six kilos underweight. And what they had been doing is like moving the fuel around um, to, as a ballast, and they could like pump it between the two tanks. And so the rule was. The car dry with no fuel has to weigh 600 kilos, and uh, the car dry without fuel actually weighed 594 kilos, I think. So that was a two-race ban. I love the ingenuity, but you know, it's one of those things, if you get caught, then 
you deserve you, you pay the pay the pay the pay the price. But I mean, that's that's some good thinking to try and get it, around. It's only cheating. It. It's only cheating once you get caught. And they got caught. Well, but yeah, yeah. And the, but you think off that high of 2004, their 2005 season was an absolute disaster. No, no wonder they sold out at the end of the year. Well, because they got banned for two races. Did they cop a fine as well? I don't believe they did. Yeah, right, okay. That's interesting. Usually They, they may don't. have, but I'm not aware of them. Uh, certainly nothing significant enough mm. to uh, to be in the memory bank. Maybe the fine was they got sent home from Barcelona, so they paid all the money to get there. <laughs> True. And they got turned around. Because they appealed it, or was it the FIA appealed? Um, the stewards at the time, or there was something like the that. FIA like, appealed the stewards, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so then. B- BAR tried to claim that the, the car was never underweight during the race, but then there was sort of no way to prove that it wasn't underweight. Yeah. At, at, at some point during the race. And they, and they said the rule was pretty clear cut. They said you can't use fuel to ballast your car over overweight. Mm. Well, the other thing is, with no fuel, the car has to be 600 kilos, and with yeah. no fuel, the car was not 600 yeah. kilos, which, again, is that's a good 300 kilos lighter than the cars today when they're sitting on the grid. So, yeah. again, like, can we just point out that these current cars seriously need to lose some weight? That's not very mm. Formula One. Need to lose some weight, lose a turbo, up. and gain some cylinders. And shorten, shorten, shorten themselves up. Yeah. Do you know the you yeah. know the greatest irony though is this was the same Tyrrell team that was excluded from the 1984 championship for the same thing or sorry similar thing running underway. Oh, with the water wheels. Mm. Was too. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, obviously BAR purchasing Tyrrell. Um, yeah. So it was in the blood. And it's also the team that's won the last seven world championships. Hmm. <laughs> As Mercedes now. Um, another highlight of that year, which seems to be forgotten these days, Luke, was was a Williams going across the Harbour Bridge. Yep, yep. Weber drove the Williams across the Sydney Harbour Bridge the weekend before the Australian Grand Prix in Melbourne. Were Literally, you there? I wasn't there. I wasn't there. I I did get up and watch it on TV though. They had it live on Channel Ten the yep. Sunday morning. It was pretty awesome. It was pretty cool. Very cool. It's something you could you could only it only would only ever work as a one off. I think if you did, if you did it again, it'd just be oh we've seen that before. But I think that stopping traffic on a Sunday morning to do that was well well worth it. it I think it did get the the sort of attention that the New South Wales government were after. Although I'm not sure how happy the Victorian government were. Yeah, I think I think they were pissed. Well, they get the Grand Prix, so they can't complain too much. Well, I think I think yeah, I think what the Victorian um, people were buying up about is that they pay forty million dollars to get the Grand Prix, um, and here the New South Wales government is shutting down a bridge for a couple of hours and getting you wouldn't say the same coverage, but uh, you know access to um, their product, so to speak. The bit I liked about it was that um, I think Weber was technically supposed to drive at 60 kilometres an hour over it. He went a little bit quicker than that, but but I mean he, he couldn't he couldn't really go for it because you could see how bumpy it was. 
Yeah, there's bumps that you you could sit in a Lamborghini road car and not feel bumps. Like there's some bumps, but the F1 car looks like it's going through a Woolworths yeah. car park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. It's like darting left to right, and you know they would have jacked as much ride height into that thing as they could. Yeah, it looked good though. It, it was. I wish I'd gone. Here's a question for you: What would you have been able to see? Obviously, you would have heard the thing. It's just for the sound, I reckon. Yeah, that that'd be the only, the only thing because you you couldn't stand on the edge of the Harbour Ridge. You had no. to stand down and look up at it. I think the the trick would have been to be on a train, on, on the train, or, yeah, on the train or on the bridge climb. Bridge climb, yeah, exactly. Or be, the, or be or, or be the first car waiting to waiting at either end. Imagine being that person who doesn't know. Doesn't follow F1, doesn't do anything like that. Wanted to go off in the morning for their bridge climb, and they go, "Oh, geez, there's no cars on the bridge today. I wonder what all the cars come across and did it all this." Then next thing, Mark Webber just flies down in, in the Williams and scares the living hell out of them. I think a lot of people complained about it too. Good, there Sucked are a lot. In. Yeah, good. I hope it echoed for hours afterwards. <laughs> The people from North Sydney probably wouldn't would have been uh, unhappy that their bridge was shut for them to come across. Oh, it's good if we want to keep them out. <laughs> nice Sunday morning. Like, it, thankfully, it wasn't peak hour. Yeah, well, I think the Sunday morning worked worked well as well. They had the um the breakfast TV there and everything, and I think it did the job. They should they should have they should have had Hydefeld there too and had drag races across there. Yeah, that's a mad idea. They absolutely should have done that, Luke. What's the next fact from 2005? Well, there's plenty to discuss. I think probably the the big one that we've glossed over is the uh, change from um, well, change in rules or only one set of tyres for an entire race, uh, unless you had to change one for safety reasons. So was that an attempt by Formula One to uh, take some advantage of Ferrari or was it just a genuinely organic rule change that happened to hurt Ferrari and Bridgestone? Oh, I would think it was to try and change up the, the pecking order a little. I, I agree with you. The only thing is the FIA would have had no idea that that change specifically would, you know, hurt Ferrari and Bridgestone so much and help yeah, the Michelin runners so much. Like that's, I, I agree. I think they were trying to shake things up, but um, yeah, there was no way of predicting it was going to be that significant to flip the field on its head. I think it was aimed at, not well. I think it was aimed specifically at Ferrari, in as much as Ferrari had dominated 2004, and they wanted to close things up for 2005. Similar way that after Ferrari dominated 2002, for 2003 in came one lap qualifying and Park Ferme, the start of the Park Ferme rules. So I didn't mind the one tyre rule. It was surprising how much it hurt the the early or the A-spec or 2004 Ferrari that they modified to run for 2005. It was absolutely nowhere. Um, I think they qualified 12th and 13th for the first race of the year, somewhere around there. Mm. Um, but it was it, wet, it, it, yeah, wet as well, so they got caught was, out in that first row. So that is a fair point, and I and probably Barrichello should have acknowledged second. that. Yeah, but it ended up with Schumacher being caught by Heidfeld, and that Williams was not, you know, really a top three car, you know, 
much um, mm. caught by Heidfeld and they ended up coming together. So that, and that, you know, this is from the same chassis essentially that has set every lap record known to man just 12 months earlier. So um, it really hurt Ferrari left some scrambling to design that, that B spec car, which ended up being a lot better, but Bridgestone just never got their heads around it. I think it um mixed it up a bit. It was, it was a, it was a change from the, the tire pit stops. Yeah, it was good in the sense that there was a lot of push, push, push. If you listen to the team radio from 2005, there was a lot of push, come on, push harder, which you don't hear a lot of now. It's almost like a treat. Like yeah. Right at the end of the race, you can push to get faster slap. Yeah. But, yeah, in that era, I mean, those tyres were concrete. And, and most of the time when they started graining up, which was generally inevitable if you were in traffic, um, you had to push to, to burn through the graining phase. So... Yeah, I mean, that was probably a good side effect of it. Um, one other thing that is also often forgotten is Renault's unbelievable launch control in 2005-2006. Yeah. yeah. It's probably one of the best launch control systems, certainly legal launch control systems that have ever been run in Formula 1. And there's lots of rumours as to how they did it, but nothing else could come close. Even after two years of, of trying to develop their own, nobody could get near Renault. I think it was the same launch control system that they ran in 94. That's thrown it out there. In, in 2004, I think that was when they first started perfecting it because I remember they were getting some good starts in 04 towards the end of the year. Yeah, so I read something. The theory is that there's, they, there was some sort of jump start indicator. Ugh, I don't know how. and But basically they reckon the launch control could sense when the jump start indicator had switched off and it would react immediately and it could react faster than a human could to the lights. And I don't know whether it was something in the ECU or I don't know. I don't know. That's just what I read. I probably shouldn't have said that because I couldn't possibly explain how it works. But that was an interesting <laughs> theory. It helped them. Although there were some races where um the McLarens beat them off the line. So... It was rare, though. Yeah, oh, very, very rare. Very rare. Remember, I think it was Spa. Montoya's on pole, and Alonso's alongside him, and he just, Montoya just takes off. I guess the sad thing of 2005, for me anyway, was the last year of uh, Minardi, Jordan, and Sauber. NBAR. NBAR, yes. So that was sad in a way, I thought. Oh, very Especially as um, Minardi had their Australian owner, Paul Stoddart. Yep. Um, I guess he just he just had enough by then, after five years running the team. So we know, Daniel, you're a bit of a Christian Albers fan. <laughs> so how did that impact you, knowing it was the end of, of Christian Albers driving a Minardi? Well, I had high hopes that he'd be picked up by one of the other uh, teams, carried over into Toro Rosso. Um, but yeah, no, I, it was it was very sad to see uh, the end of the Minardi name on the grid. Um, and, and Christian Albers driving a Minardi more specifically. Well, yes, yeah. I, I don't know. I just it was hard. To, it was hard to um, differentiate the two. Um, but yeah, no, Christian Albers much better than his record allows or suggests would be fair to say. Where did he wind up post Formula One? Well, he, he he came from the DTM, and he okay. just he he Straight just back. went back. Yeah, he just went back to the DTM. But yeah. I mean, he hung around in F1 for a bit. He was with um he was with Spiker in 2006 and seven. 
but yeah, then he just went back to DTM. Yeah, and no, I'd throw him in the mix of your Ralph Furmans and your uh, Patrick Freesakers and Ooh. your. Uh, you put yeah. in, I don't know. I reckon <laughs> you'd probably like you know if I'm looking at it objectively, I'd say Hamilton ish level. <laughs> Verstappen, Albers, they sound. Look, I'm a bit of an Albers fan, so uh, I'll put him right up there. Well, I mean, he had done really good in DTM with Mercedes, so it was a shame that after um after Minardi went away, it's a shame Mercedes didn't put him in the um in the McLaren in 2006 when uh, Montoya got sacked mid year. But he he went back to DTM and he never um he never ever recaptured the DTM form that he had before 2005. Should we uh should we discuss truly? And he's, in, to be honest, incredible qualifying efforts for most of the year. <laughs> the truly train. Yeah. Which is what it led to. He was an absolute beast over one lap. He has to be one of the best. Um, Seriously, whatever car you put him in, he would always put it two or three grid, grid rows higher than where it probably should be. So phenomenal qualifier in 2005 and that Toyota was decent but man he got some good laps out of that thing he was very good in 2005 and the Toyota was very good and it's it, it's weird in a way that Schumacher got more points than him in the championship Ralph Schumacher well, as you said Schumacher I think just bagged those two podiums which uh oh truly got one podium so that's that evens out actually he, no, he, he should have got... he got three Truly got three podiums. He should have got more though, because he was he was up the front so many times. And mm. but shows you, he, shows you the strength of that Toyota, the greatest Toyota F1 car of all time. That in 2009. Yeah, 2009 was a good car. It shows how how ineffective the train the truly train was though. If it only if it only ended up get, getting him three 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 podiums. Just just one more thing, Yano Trulli's hair. What about it? <laughs> I'd forgotten how impressive it was. Well, I don't know what's more impressive, his hair or these sunglasses. <laughs> you couldn't have one without the other. You, you see him post-race, and obviously he's sweaty and all that, and the hair's under a hat, and it just looks like he's just got long, normal long long hair. But then there was a shot on the review of him just about to put his balaclava on before the start of the race, and he's just got this massive mane. Is it, was it as good as Antonio Liuzzi's mullet? Well, we're Australian, so there's nothing better than a mullet. Okay. <laughs> you don't agree? Oh, look, I'm I'm a, I'm a bit of a truly fan, so um, yeah, I don't have a problem with these with these luscious locks. Uh, no, I I love them. I don't know how he started putting them into a man bun. I think in later years, didn't he? I think he did. Yeah. By the time he was um in in the in the catering. I thought when you were talking about diamonds, I thought you were talking about Kimi Raikkonen's helmet at Monaco when he had uh, diamonds on his helmet as well. But you know what? At least they put them on his helmet rather than on the nose cone like they did on the Jaguar. And like a quarter of a million dollar diamond went missing after a shunt in practice and has never been found. But have you you heard the conspiracy? What's the conspiracy? That there was never like... It was it never was like put a, into the nose game. Yeah, there's like a there's like a dummy diamond, and basically it was always going to be lost. What did we think of the combined qualifying that they, that they had for the first six races? I liked it, but not from a traditional qualifying sense. 
So obviously from a traditional qualifying stats history sense, it's terrible. But I do like the randomness. It did mix up the grids. And I, I love single lap qualifying. So one car on track, one chance, all the sponsors get their value for money. You know, they all get the same amount of airtime. Personally, I liked it. Um, but I understand it's, it's not a popular opinion. I think yeah. it, I think the one lap could have worked if you didn't have to run on your race fuel for it. Like, you still get that thing and you get the quickest car out, out to the front and everything. It did mix up the the results for it. But, yeah, I can't say I was the biggest fan of it. I just found it confusing. Like, or not, sorry, not confusing, but some good, always good thing about qualifying was everyone had a crack and you knew who the, who the pole person was, like the pole winner. Whereas I just found it so drawn out and it just, just took too long and lost a bit of interest. How, how, does, it, how, how does it rate up against uh, F1 this year where you go uh, qualifying into a sprint race into that sets the grid for the, uh, for the Grand Prix on the Sunday? So what, what would, no. if we had to pick, what would we... Yeah. Ag- yeah. Aggregate qualifying was better, man. Aggro, it wasn't too bad. I think if they reversed it, so on the Saturday was the fuel load quality run, and then Sunday was... Oh, sorry. Friday, first qualifying was your fuel load quality run, and then Saturday was your all-out qualifying run. I think if they reversed it, it would have it been better. But having the main qualifying session with your race fuel like was a bit crap. Yeah, I I didn't really mind the aggregate qualifying. My I'm my, my, my only <laughs> my only issue with it though, and really my only my issue with the one lap qualifying is the one of the beauties of qualifying is always that it's someone just throwing everything at one lap. And I've always found with one lap qualifying, because they don't have a second chance, people are maybe not always giving it everything. But that's probably a so, good point. Like if you if you know roughly from um, practice where your lap time speed is and what everyone else is doing. You know, if you're in and around, you know, the, say around 10th to 14th, is one or two spots going to make a bigger difference? So did they hold back so they didn't take as much out of the tyres to give them a better shot in the race? Well, that that's, that's where the second part of it, um, running on your race fuel came in, I guess. People mm. would see where they were after the first um, after the first lap, and then fuel themselves accordingly for the second. I didn't really like qualifying with your race fuel, but I could I could see why they did it. I could I could see what they were trying to achieve. I'd have rather they just did them, almost did them back to back, because one of the reasons they 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 changed um, they changed the rule halfway through the year back to just to a single qualifying lap on on race fuel was that they thought they people didn't like um there not being a result on sunday afternoon because qualifying wasn't the the pole sitter wasn't then crowned until sunday morning mm. yeah and the press couldn't write stories and yeah so i don't see why they did, just didn't move the second run to saturday afternoon as well you could you could do them both in an hour well um, I, th- I think the one lap qualifying yeah took it did take about an hour but two hours you could do it for sure. Yeah. Or or if in terms of what Daniel was saying, it can get a bit drawn out watching the one car just go around, send two out at a time, half a lap apart. Was it actually boring though? Like I never found the one lap qualifying boring to watch. I actually thought it was quite spectacular. 
Rock, I, the Australian Grand Prix, I remember. I remember that day. I took off uni early to yeah, come and watch the um, qualifying or actually practice and then qualifying. But, and I was excited because it was something new. I thought Weber was going to be – actually, was pretty competitive that weekend. Yeah, but honestly, by midway through the year, no. Nah. I was, yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's when, then it, that's when it became the same thing. Like, I mean, every track, the same, yeah, same kind of experience. Yeah. But it's like having the Bathurst 1000 qualifying at every round. They've tried that. They did it and, for years. Oh, did they? And how'd it go? Ten, top 10 shootouts. Top 15, um, mate. We've yeah, got to go. 10, 15's were the goat. I think pretty much every year from probably 2000 <laughs> to 2006, 2007, they'd shootouts just about every round. Okay. And okay. And do they still do it now? No. Nah. Everyone's everyone said it made the Bathurst one less special. The worst thing they did, um, and I'm sorry to talk about supercars, <laughs> but was that sprint round at the start of this year, they did two shootouts. At least they weren't full field shootouts. Imagine that around Bathurst. Uh, I, I take your point with the supercar shootouts and the F1, but but Top 15 shootouts were the pinnacle of motorsport. However, I will say this. Super Pole in World Superbike back in the day at Phillip Island, I thrived on that. That was, there was something about Super Pole qualifying in World Superbikes, yeah. But it was just the same thing, which is weird. Except, yeah. you, got a, except you got a Rolex if you got Pole. Not bad. I'd take that. So I guess the consensus is... F1 qualifying 2005 was okay. We didn't hate it. We didn't love it, but it was okay. So. It was it was interesting. Yeah, interesting, right. different. It was like the one tire rule. It was it was different. Yeah, it was all right. You don't look yeah. back and be like, oh, that's the worst thing they ever did. You know, like going to hybrids. You're just like, oh, you no. know, it's pretty cool. Whatever. That's a good way of summing it up, actually. That's a very good way of summing it up. And on that, we'll take a quick break and be back in a moment. Breakthrough Health and Wellness. The Breakthrough 60-Day Challenge combines a highly effective weight loss program and a high-end personal fitness experience without costly memberships. In a culture of flash workouts and going hard, Breakthrough have taken a more sustainable approach and developed the perfect program that will not only get you fit and healthy, but also help you shed stubborn weight that you thought was never going to budge. Breakthrough will offer new inspiration and goals that will lead to life changes you can easily maintain. Each week, Breakthrough offer interesting muscular endurance, strengthening and functional movement exercises with a training app that will rival any workout you have done at the gym. For more information, visit mybreakthrough.com.au. That's M-Y-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-U. And follow Breakthrough on Facebook and Instagram. Welcome back to our podcast, looking back on the 2005 Formula One season. Juan Montoya, what do we think of his season? Ever since he, um, especially since he came back from the um, the the tennis accident, was was the laugh there insinuating it might not have been a tennis accident? R- rumor rumor has it it may not have been. Maybe a motorcycle accident. 
And didn't someone say he was playing tennis whilst on a motorbike? And that's yeah. the, uh... <laughs> it's nearly as good as the uh, Alan McNish um, one for the race of a thousand years in Adelaide. The different stories getting around for that. <laughs> do, do you think his 05 season was a disappointment? He won. He yes. won. He, he won three races. It was very, very inconsistent. A few unforced errors, getting disqualified for leaving the pit lane while the red light was on, for example. But do you reckon that was just, you know, a brain explosion on that, on that, on his part there? It was just deliberate because he was frustrated that the team didn't call him in, just as the safety car was called, I reckon. Yeah. I think in true Montoya fashion, he did not give a crap. He had some high highs and some low lows. Like, obviously, Canada was a low, but, I mean, the races he won, he won quite convincingly. He was fast. He was just super inconsistent. And, and he never seemed to really gel at McLaren. Obviously, easy to look in hindsight, but at the time we thought it was a strange move, moving from Williams to McLaren. But... Uh, yeah, just never really looked comfortable there, did he? If memory serves, he only signed the McLaren contract because he was angry at Williams. Yeah, after I mean, um, if after, you think about Ron after, Dennis and Montoya, it's like oil and water. It was either going to work or it wasn't. It was either going to work really well or it wasn't going to work at all. But I think, yeah. I think given given he signed with them in a huff after he got angry at. Williams at Magni Corps in 2003 and then went and signed with them for 2005, McLaren for 2005. That was possibly an inauspicious start. Yeah, and one they never never really came back from. Could you have seen at the end of 05, though, that Montoya was only going to last another half a season in Formula 1 and then he'd be gone for good? Mm, yeah, probably, because he didn't seem to have the passion for it. Not like he did when he came in in nah. 01, anyway. Uh, definitely not. So I think in hindsight, the writing was on the wall, but I think he was massive loss. Like, a lot of people liked Montoya. I really liked Montoya. His driving style and his personality, he was very unique. He was there for himself most of the time. Obviously, he was like, he was a pretty decent team player, actually, Montoya. But uh, on track battles, he definitely raced for himself. He was super aggressive. He didn't give care who you were. He didn't mm. care if his car was slower. He would fight to the death. And um, he was an awesome driver and super, like, looking back on it, he was actually a super refreshing person to have on the grid. And I think he added a lot to F1. But uh, I think in hindsight, you could see it was coming to an end. Well, even 2006, when he when he left, when he left halfway through the season, I mean, he'd gotten two or three podiums that year in that first half of the season. So he was still, if the passion had gone, he was still able to put in the good performances. Yeah, the way he finished 2005, I thought he was kind of like he retired from Japan and China, but he was, you know, on the back of those wins that he took in Monza and uh, Interlagos. I was kind of thinking he was setting himself up for 2006, but then the McLaren was such a disappointment in 2006 as well. So I think with any kind of motivation waning, it just took the wind out of his sails. Well, you mentioned Japan. Montoya's retirement. He was run off the track by Villeneuve, wasn't he? Payback for Monaco. Matter of opinion, but yeah. <laughs> well, and probably Villeneuve in his comeback season after having the majority of 2004 off. Could you argue maybe his um, 
passion for it wasn't exactly there either by that point because it was a bit of a lacklustre season. I mean, he was only in a Sauber, but... Yeah, like, lacklustre when he scored nine points. Yeah, he had three retirements. Yeah, and he went pretty close to Massa as well. Like, I actually think... I think it was actually a decent enough season based on the expectations for him. Because you think when he came back for that Renault in 2004, he'd been out of the sport for a year, but he, he was a long way off Alonso. So... You think a world champion taking a Sauber drive. And in the end, his timing didn't work out, but it, it could have could have worked in his favour when BMW picked up the team for 2006. I think it was pretty clear BMW didn't want him, though. Yeah, they were trying to find a way to get Kubica in. One thing I do have to say about that Sauber, though, is I reckon Brock will contend this. I reckon the Sauber was the best-looking car on the grid. Oof. Oh, I just, like, in terms of that, I love the paint job on it. It was, it was very recognisable, I'll give it that. Yeah. I mean, they basically had the same look for 11 years from 95 until 2005. A little bit of a white added to it in 2001, but it was the same general design. And I, 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 thought, I thought it looked quite good. You, are you a credit Swiss customer? <laughs> I'm not, so obviously the advertising didn't work, but I, yeah. it did make me know what credit Swiss is. I wonder, cars like that, I wonder how would they have gone if they were on a different tyre? Well, yeah. Although, probably not any better if they were on a Bridgestone, perhaps, in 2005. Yeah, it's just something I ponder sometimes. Well, when you no. look at the make makeup of the field too, yeah. I only just, and that Indianapolis race showed it. But yeah, to think, Ferrari were the only team on Bridge, the only competitive team on Bridgestones. Which probably explains, you know, when you've got seven of ten teams or whatever the thing was, single tyres per race, they just weren't accumulating any data, Bridgestone. Yeah. Which, um, yeah, probably back, if there was a gap, it just really drove it home and reinforced it. And two-thirds of your data was coming from the four slowest cards on the grid. But back then, they didn't have as many testing, testing restrictions as there is now. So, like, Ferrari would have had their test drivers buzzing around Fiorano and Mugello and all that sort of stuff, collecting tyre data for them. Yeah, yeah. There was um, yeah, very little testing restrictions. So, And also, uh, I believe in this era, from memory, you could um, the tyres the could be tailored to each team. So, like, the Ferrari Bridgestones weren't the same as the Minardi Bridgestones, but also, mm. by the same token, the McLaren Michelins weren't the same as the Renault Michelins. Similar, but tailored to each car's needs. Mark Webber, based on his 2005 season, do you think he made the right choice signing for Williams or should he have taken up the option to sign for Renault to partner Alonso? On paper, Williams seemed like a reasonable choice. Nobody could foresee what would happen in 2005. And uh, if you, if I think all of us at the end of 04, if you were Weber, you'd pick, you'd pick Williams. Yeah, I think so too. And I actually think in hindsight, still, he was better off to go to Williams Ooh. because, well, look at what happened to Fissy Keller alongside Alonso. That's a fair point. Do you think, do we, now, like I, I'm, I'm the biggest Weber fan you can find. Um, F1 hasn't been the same for me since he stopped racing, but. 
the team was built or was being built around Alonso, and I, I I don't think he could have necessarily challenged Alonso for the championship. You know what though, it would have been really interesting seeing him go head to head because Alonso's never been regarded as an amazing qualifier. And Weber has always been a very strong qualifier, especially in that era on those tyres. Like he used to stick that Jaguar right up the front mm. quite regularly. So it is actually interesting, like Alonso versus Weber, certainly on the qualifying side of it, how that would have panned out. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I think I think if you have the opportunity to be in a championship car, you do you know what I mean? Especially you think what he what two thousand and six was for him as well. Being managed by Flavio, even if he did get decently beaten, or not decent, but he still got beaten by Alonso, which I'm sure he would have. He, in the pathway to Red Bull, probably probably is the same. Or he stays on for 2007 once Alonso's gone. He should have gone to BAR, BAR and hung around until they were Mercedes. <laughs> and now he'd be like a, like a six-time world champion. Well, didn't Button dodge a bullet by staying with BAR for 2005 and not not going to Williams like he originally mm. signed to do? Yeah, yeah, he carried on like a bit of a fool, but uh, paid dividends in the end. Because that 05, that was when BMW, I guess, got sick of Williams. Is that fair to say? I think there were murmurs or trouble ever since really 2000, that 2002 season. Um, there was discontent, but yeah, you're right. It, it hit the path of no return, end of 2004, start 2005. What do you think Weber's best race was in 2005? Do, do you know what? If he didn't run into Montoya at the first corner of Nürburgring, I think that would have been his race. That would have been his best race. Because he, he qualified unbelievably on more fuel um, than he everyone around third. him. Yeah, but on, like, on considerably more fuel. Like way more fuel than Heidfeld, way more fuel. I, I remember saying on fuel, like fuel correction, he was the fastest car in that qualifying session. So I think that had his potential. But overall, I think as much as he was unhappy about it, his first podium in Monaco um, was something to savour. Did we ever get the full story as to what happened in that race, as to why they pitted Heidfeld first before Weber, which? was obvi- always obviously going to allow Heidfeld to get in front of him. I think at the time, wasn't it, because it was single single tyre and refuelling, wasn't the thinking was going longer, like in a normal situation, going longer? Well, they were, they were, they were boxed up behind Alonso. Alonso, yeah. And because when they had, they when Albers spun at um, Mirabeau, and Coulthard slowed down and then Schumacher ran off the back of him and it caused a safety car. That was on about lap 20 or something. Alonso pitted and he took on enough fuel then to go to the end of the race, which just stuffed his tyres. So he had Weber and Heidfeld stuck up behind him and Weber couldn't get past him. So maybe 20 laps to go, something like that. Weber and Heidfeld are boxed up behind Alonso and they called Heidfeld in first to refuel he refuels, goes out, and straight away is going a couple of seconds a lap faster than Alonso and Weber. In the clean air, yeah. Yeah, which was yeah. always going to happen because Alonso was going so slow. Yeah. I just, I don't believe they, like, they realised that was going to happen, if that made sense. Like, I don't I don't think it was an orchestrated move. I think they were just um, 
you know, whether it was like a pre-scheduled, you'll pit on this lap and then they didn't react. Yeah. But yeah, as you said, it worked very much in uh, Heidfeld's favour. Jumped out and pulled that pretty sweet move on uh, Alonso. Well, the uh, Harborside chicane, yeah. All I can think of there is that maybe it was an equivalent of nowadays when, was it a few years ago, Valtteri Bottas was boxed up behind someone and Hamilton said, oh, I can get past him if you let me have a go. So they told Bottas to move aside. Hamilton tried to overtake, ultimately couldn't get the job done. So they swapped him back on the last lap and let Bottas in front of him. Maybe it was Williams's way of letting Heidfeld have a go at trying to pass Alonso. I don't remember any of that on the radio, like on the radio though. I just remember no. um, Weber being absolutely pissed. Oh yeah, he was very unhappy. On well, the that, is it? That's Weber and Williams just summed up in a sentence <laughs> by Daniel. I just remember <laughs> Weber being pissed. <laughs> Do you, yeah. Does anyone want to discuss Ralph Schumacher's crash on Monaco weekend? It was a pretty good one. Oh, that was a huge one. Like, you don't see many crashes at Tobacco. Mm. Certainly not single car crashes. And he, it, when he turned in, it turned like an arrow. Yeah. Which, which he said that all previous through the weekend that it, it, it understeered a bit more. So he tried to turn it in just a fraction earlier to keep on, and it stuck that time, and that's why he hit the inside wall. Jeez, he had some crashes in the back end of his career. And the Melbourne one. Two at Indy, and then, yeah, the one at Monaco. It's, uh... Well, sh- should we discuss the practice two? F- a four-car crash in practice two, heading up the hill out of St. Devot, um, which the stewards ruled was caused by Montoya brake-testing Jacques Villeneuve. Yeah, and then Coulthard ran up. Was it Coulthard ran up the back of Villeneuve? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there was someone else involved. I can't remember who now. It's a bit of Montoya, a bit of Colombian fire involved in that one, I think. <laughs> and especially to do it in front of Villeneuve, because them two had a, lot, had a bit of history as well. Yeah, so that's what uh, my theory is. The, the, the Suzuka incident was Villeneuve's payback. <laughs> Probably was. Spe- speaking of Weber... Uh, for us to watch him in Australia that year, we obviously had to watch on Channel 10. And that was the third year that Channel 10 had been covering Formula One after taking over the TV rights from Channel 9 in 2003. Do you guys remember the website F1 Fans versus Channel 9? No. 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 It was set up in around 2000 by some... It was set up by you, wasn't it? No, it wasn't set up for me. I did, I did, I did, I did subscribe to the website though. It had to actually, it had a good little trading area where people could trade Formula One races they had on tape. That so was that was actually quite handy. But no, the website was set up to try and lobby Channel Nine. To, they were sick of the um, the time slots that Channel Nine were showing the Grand Prix in in sort of the late nineties into the early two thousands because Channel Nine had had the TV rights since early nineteen eighty one and yeah, by by 2000, really, it seems like after 1999, they'd sort of lost a bit of interest. And 2000, 2001, 2002, on average, you wouldn't hear much about the Formula One races in between events. And then their their TV times were usually around somewhere between 10.30 and 11 p.m. They'd start playing the races. And obviously back then it was a 10 p.m. race start Australian time. It usually depended on the length of the Sunday night movie, 
what what time they'd cross to the Formula One. So there there was obviously a push for Channel 10, who called themselves the home of motorsport at the time, and they had a huge range of of uh, motorsport properties. And Formula One got added to that in 2003. But by 2005, people were, I guess, the love affair with Channel 10 had worn off because a website was started up by then called um, F1 Fans versus Channel 10 because they didn't like the time slots that Channel 10 was showing the Formula One races on because Channel 10 still weren't showing them live. It was a hard, usually 10.30 p.m. start time because Channel 10 were one of the first, well, they were the first commercial station to stop playing a Sunday night movie. They'd play two, they'd play a couple of um, TV shows and then 10.30 p.m. they'd cross to the Formula One. But that was basically the races at that point were all we got. We didn't get any, we didn't get any live qualifying and certainly no practice. But yeah, by then, Channel 10's um, coverage was wearing a bit thin. What are our memories of Channel 10 broadcasting F1 around that time? I have very clear memories of, of the Neil Crompton would do the, the quick rundown of what happened in qualifying during the supercar race of that day. And yep. he'd give you like the weather forecast. And I was just, it was just good times. That's my memory of Channel 10 covering the F1. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I didn't have too much of a problem with the Channel 9 broadcast. And equally, the Channel 10 broadcast was um, pretty good. I, I wasn't jumping on any forums badgering anyone about start times or things like that and yeah and i picked up the world feed so uh that was pretty good no complaints for me how about you adam to, to be honest my memory's a bit limited um going back on the ins and outs of the coverage but you know i think i just joined in watch watch the races and yeah didn't nothing sticks to mind for it i think i think ultimately i think by then the change to channel 10 was for the better Bill Woods and Daryl Eastlake are equivalents, I suppose. What Bill Woods had interest, where whereas Daryl Eastlake had passion, and Neil Crompton, while he didn't have the Formula One experience, I think he was he he had his nose a bit more to the ear, sorry, to the ground a bit more in terms of the current day Formula One. Whereas Alan Jones, a lot of the time, relied on which by then was getting onto 20 year old experience in Formula One. But also by, by the early 2000s, Channel 9 didn't have any weekend sports shows to sort of build up to the Formula 1 because after 99, they, they'd axed the Wide World of Sports TV show on Saturday afternoons, which used to carry a lot of Formula 1 content. And Sports Sunday was gone on Sunday afternoon. So basically, you only heard from Daryl and AJ every every couple of Sundays, whereas Channel, whereas Channel 10 would sort of build the Formula 1 up through RPM. They'd usually review qualifying and everything on a Sunday Arvo, and then, as Brock said, they'd talk about it during um, the V8s on a, on a Sunday afternoon leading into the race on a Sunday night. But probably where Channel 10 let themselves down was the 2005 Japanese Grand Prix, which clashed with the 2005 super cheap auto 1000 at bathurst so channel 10 basically after the after the v8 race finished they had about about an hour or so before the 10 news started on the sunday evening so they shoehorned the japanese grand prix which was i think we'll all agree just about the best race of the year they shoehorned that into an hour and if you if you watch the channel 10 coverage of that race um kimmy raikkonen doesn't make a pit stop 
dis- disgraceful by Channel 10 to cut the uh, second best race behind Imola mm. of the year in half. And Raikkonen uh, should get a penalty for not making a fuel stop. <laughs> <laughs> Did they offer any kind of um, replay link, like full replay? Oh, not not from memory. I'm pretty sure I would have taped it if they did. Yeah, but I, I don't. I, I don't. I think it was only years later that I saw the race in full. That's when I found out. Oh, Kimi Raikkonen did make a pit stop in that race. But that, I guess, brings us from maybe, well, arguably the best race, along with Imola, brings us probably to the worst race of the year, the um, US Grand Prix at Indianapolis. Worst, and it all sta- race, w- w- worst race because of the spectacle that it was of six cars on the grid, or Hey, two Minardis in the points, Christian Albers, outstanding. What's bad about it? Yeah, I know. Schumacher wins. What, what, what I, is heard, I heard it described as the day Formula One ate itself. <laughs> and I think that's, that was the uh, that was the telling point. That was some of the most ridiculous, um, stubborn, single-mindedness that, uh, you know, will, in a way, set uh, Formula One racing back what 10 years in the u.s i i have never heard a decent idea for how to avoid what happened though well there isn't one yeah because they couldn't change the track because the fia wouldn't have had could could they have not changed uh, the track they couldn't that has to like go through a full approval they can't because if they put in a chicane that's a logical thing but if someone has an accident at that chicane and dies or a flag marshal's killed or a will goes into the crowd and he goes to court, the, the judge is going to go, well, that's great that you put in a chicane, but the chicane wasn't approved and there were mm. no safety checks done on it. And so yeah, you're but, completely liable. But in IndyCar, they've constructed temporary like chicanes overnight. Yeah, in, but that, I, in, the, in, in that era. That's, that's what I don't understand. Like, I fully agree that you can't have, um, you know what I mean, like Michelin needed to be penalised for not bringing a tyre that suited it. But I I just still struggle to see how six cars running around was the best option out of everything available um, for that Grand Prix. But I guess it's like, yeah, like if you put, uh, you know, speed restrictions or something through there, then you're disadvantaging the six Bridgestone shot cars to say, well, you know, because your tyre manufacturer bought brought a tyre to the race that could withstand everything um, that it needed, that they're going to peg them back to to the rest of the field for it. So that's doing something like that, a speed limit or something like that through it, would make it a bit of a question mark over the result for it. Yeah, I th- well, everything everything that I've read about that event was all the Michelin teams were pretty much happy to put their hand up and, in a way, concede the result, yeah, or take penalties that basically ensured the Bridgestone teams, um, you know, finished ahead, but just to do something to uh, ensure that there was a race. But, um, yeah, event well, obviously think, didn't happen. I, I think uh, from the... 2005 review they asked michael schumacher about that um and i can't remember word for word but he quoted something that happened at monza uh from the drivers meeting that they should the drivers should get together and you know make a pack to 
to do something to do it. Not overtake. Yeah. In the yeah. And the first two chicanes and have yellow flags and stuff there. And a couple of people came out and said, we won't be doing that. Um, we're here to race. We're here to win. So, um, yeah, he made some comment saying that, that, you know, it's, it wasn't okay to do it then, but now you want to do it because you're on the other end of it. I think he was insinuating for some of the Michelin shot teams. How about Ralph Schumacher's luck that he he has the big he has the big crash there in 2004 in the Williams, which keeps him out for a, for a couple of races, and then 2005 his he crashes in the same spot in the Toyota, and that's the catalyst for the um the Michelin tire failures, which get discovered and then cancels the well cancels the Michelin participation in the race. Unlucky, like there's like. Not much you can say about it other than he's very, very unlucky to have that happen two years in a row. Obviously, the race be- the race became a battle between Schumacher and Barrichello, and they nearly ran into each other at the first corner mm. after one after one of the pit stops. It was it was surprising. Like you think sitting through that race, you go, "Oh, this has been an absolute bore." But um, obviously, with the interviews and things and everything going around, and you're right, Luke, um, Barrichello really. Um, giving Schumacher quite the hurry up um, as well, and I think he was he was quite unlucky, or he he could have been much more forceful in that first uh, in that first corner to maybe even get the um, job done. But once he missed that opportunity, obviously Indianapolis being in Indianapolis, you can't get close enough to overtake. He'd been upset with Schumacher earlier in the year in Monaco as well, when when. Schumacher had dive bombed him on the last lap at the chicane, and then this sort of added to it. But do you think at that point in time where Ferrari were behind and trying to claw Schumacher back as much as possible, that they were they were going to let any anything else but Michael Schumacher win that race? Oh, I don't think they let him win it. I think if Barrichello, they might have tried to advantage Schumacher a bit, but I think if Barrichello had done enough to stay ahead, they would have let him keep it. Mm. So it wouldn't be like a Red Bull Red Bull ring or A1 GP or A1 ring back back when that scandal? <laughs> uh, I don't... Uh, no, no. Because Schumacher had no chance of the championship. Yeah, yeah. They, they were well out of it by then. I was surprised, though, how early in the season the US Grand Prix was. I've been so used to it being the last couple of races, but um, this one was really just before the halfway point of the season. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd kind of just in the back of my head had it lined up as a race late in the season. Uh, yeah, no, they slotted it in straight after Canada. Yeah, like yeah, round it's, nine. It was pretty close yeah. to the Indy 500. And that, and that, and I, from memory, Brock, that was the um, diamond cutting um, that caused it when they relayed the, Circuit for the Indy 500. So yeah, supposedly. Diamond grant grinding, I believe, not cutting. Yeah. One oh, other yeah. thing about that is interesting is Michelin offered to uh, refund all ticket holders and also pre-purchased 20,000 tickets for the following event at Indianapolis to give away. Did they go through with it? Well, I was hoping you'd know the answer to that. <laughs> I have no idea. That's pretty good of them trying to get on the front foot, understanding that, you know, the result they obviously were trying to get behind closed doors 
didn't eventuate so what's the best thing that they can do um that's you know that, that's trying to do the, the whole pr spin to get themselves on the good foot which is good to see like they could have easily just gone oh well we tried f1 politics you know we can just come back next year but understanding what they what they did that's that's pretty good to see what is interesting is the fans went there and didn't see a race well they did but you know not a proper race mm, no. and you know everyone's like oh well obviously they they need to be refunded which is fair enough and then spa this year they run two laps under safety car and and call it a race and where's <laughs> yeah i don't this it's actually where's not off? too different if you think about it no. well actually they saw more of a race at um uh, at indy at at yeah so bit of an odd one there and they got to throw all their beer cans on the track at indy too yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think people start leaving pretty much straight after the race start. I think as well. Yeah, oh yeah, they were interviewing people in the in the car park and that. And well, I think that was the thing too. They were just in the dark about it. Like yeah. a lot of people in the crowd didn't know what was happening until well, even after the cars just all pulled into the pits. And I think that's where obviously Formula One really, you know, delved into stupidity was when you're just keeping the fans in the dark oh but keeping fans in the dark is is the like picture perfect example of the bernie era well even at the liberty era look at um the 2020 australian grand prix on the friday yeah well that's true that's true actually that was a tie-up between who was going to cancel it though and the contractual obligations around that it still wasn't putting the fans first. Yeah, the fans no, were still no. lined up at the gate, and especially, Seb, especially Seb given and Kimmy had gone home twelve hours earlier. Yeah, <laughs> but especially given it was a coronavirus that was the cause of the race, and they're leaving people huddled together at the gates. Can we get some media passes, Liberty? Please. <laughs> we'll tag we'll tag them in it and see what they say. We'll do 20... a podcast in the paddock, I'm sure. <laughs> Twenty 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 one Australian Grand Prix. We'll bring our face masks and. Yep. We'll uh we'll try and get um who from 2005's left we can get Christian Horner in on it. Yep, we'll get Christian. David Coulthard will be walking around. Mark Webber will probably be down there. Jensen yeah. might yep. be there for Sky. Yep. R- Rubens might be in an S5000 if they yep. bring him out. Yeah, actually we can have it just have a 2005 reunion. I think Jack Villeneuve does some um commentary these days, so he might be there. Alonso will be there. Yeah. Oh, and also hi to Ed Straw and Glenn Freeman, who are obviously listening <laughs> to this podcast. Hi, guys. Well, do, do you reckon Christian Albers will be in and around the, the paddock? Or? He's above that, mate. He's above that. <laughs> you, you mentioned of Glenn Freeman brings me on to this one. I was going to say, we mentioned earlier, 20, 2005 was the last year for, for Sauber, for Minardi, for Jordan, for BAR. But obviously, it was also the last year for V10s, and and basically the last time we had fundamentally an unlimited engine formula with sort of free development, because for 2006 the V8s came in with rev limits, and you could only develop them to a certain point, and you know they they were sort of engine development was frozen, and yeah, so on and so forth. So yeah, that's probably the saddest thing to come out of 2005. Yeah, it was just the end of of that time in the sport as well with with tobacco money where it's just obscene amounts of money like just horrendous amounts of money being spent 
but something about it is is pretty magical and uh i think everyone looks back on it with a fond heart well i think you just got to listen to the engine note and that just evokes good memories straight off the start like um like you guys know better than um myself since you've been to the australian grand prix and they've had the minardi two-seater down there and uh compared to the current hybrid era and that it's not as bad as it's made out on tv but um yeah it just doesn't match the screaming v10s bring back the v10s i think so like it like i'd say it's a tough call you know everyone talks about like the mazda 787b and whatever like it's for me it's a hard choice uh 2005 v10 you know formula one car or like a filthy old vt ecotech with the muffler <laughs> cut off <laughs> on, tw- on on 12 slotters yeah what do you reckon on stockies yeah exactly <laughs> well i think we just have to leave the opinion up to lewis hamilton if you remember at Abu Dhabi last year when Alonso was doing some prior, some some fun laps, some demonstration laps in his 2005 Renault, and Lewis stopped an interview just to listen to the listen to the car go around. I do have to say that you, if you spend a lot of time watching this year's Formula One, you forget how good they sounded. I'm sad that uh, that that era is long gone, but I'm happy that we could relive it for a little while tonight in our podcast. Mm. Me too. Me too. It was a a really good season and it's been good fun looking back on it. That's about where we'll leave it for this episode. Thanks to Daniel, Adam and Brock for joining me. Thank you to Breakthrough Health and Wellness for their support and make sure you go check out their Facebook and Instagram page and go to my-breakthrough.com.au for more information. Thanks for joining us and we'll be back with another episode very soon.